Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible handy, please look in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, and there you will find our sermon text for the evening. We are continuing and actually wrapping up this evening a mini-series that we've been doing on the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And we have said that these letters represent Jesus' word to the universal church, the church that exists throughout all lands, throughout all space, time, history. These letters are representative of things that Jesus says to his churches nearby and and far away. We have called this series sort of in jest Jesus's seven letters to one holy chaotic and apathetic church as we uh, have a spoof on what is written in the Nicene Creed because we want to understand that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a church that is yet perfect. It is a church that is in Christ, a church that He loves, a church for whom He died, but it is a church that is broken and wrecked in many ways, a church that still needs to grow up in the gospel, a church that still needs to be reminded to repent of her sins from time to time. And that is what we have found in these letters. But we come to the seventh letter tonight, and what we're going to hear are the words of Jesus to the church at Laodicea. And I want to give you fair warning that what Jesus says to this church is very disturbing, not only for the direct things that he says to them, but the things he says indirectly as well. And so with that in mind, I ask you who are able to please stand for the reading of the words of Jesus Christ to his church in Laodicea. Revelation three fourteen to 22. And the word of God reads, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works... You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, may be seated. Once again, we see Jesus communicating to his church in a very pastoral way. 
He is the good shepherd of his sheep, and he writes to a church a very personal letter explaining to them his thoughts about their life, their ministry, their relationship with him. And as we see each week, Jesus writes a letter calling the church to consider itself in light of who he is. This letter is no different as he reveals himself to the church in a very unique way. He calls himself the Amen. That means the true one, the the one that agrees with God and the one with whom God agrees. He is the yes to all of the promises that God has made. He also calls himself the faithful and true witness. And the word witness comes from the Greek word from which we get martyr. We think of Jesus as the faithful and true martyr, the one who laid down his life for these people in Laodicea. He is reminding them that he is their Savior, that he laid down his life on their behalf. And he describes himself in a way that helps them see just how far they have fallen. He is the faithful and true witness. By stark contrast, they are unfaithful and they have become phony in their walk with Him. He also reveals Himself as the beginning of God's creation. And we should understand this in light of the resurrection of Jesus, that He is the beginning of God's new creation, the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, which He inaugurated upon His resurrection. In other words, this church at Laodicea is to remember that they are living in the already not yet of the promise of the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God, who was there at the beginning of the old creation, who created and through whom and by whom all things were made. He is the preeminent one, the one who is the firstborn over all God's creation, the one through whom and by whom and for for whom all things were made. But here Jesus has in mind something even better than that. He's not referring to being the beginning or the first or the start of God's old creation. He is the start of the new creation, which was initiated at the resurrection of Jesus and which will be completed at the second advent. The church at Laodicea is living between the resurrection of Christ and the promise of His coming. And Jesus is reminding them that they have not yet arrived. They are to see themselves in light of who Jesus is. It's usually at this point in a letter when Jesus turns to commend His church. And you might have noticed as we were reading the letter aloud that there was no commendation for the church at Laodicea. This is the one letter of the seven letters in which Jesus has nothing good to say about a church for which he died. Unlike the church at Philadelphia, which we saw last week, and most of the other churches which we've seen in weeks prior to that, churches which were commended for their good works, no matter how many or how few, Jesus has nothing good to say about this congregation at Laodicea. And so he confronts the church in a very unique way. He confronts the church for her tepid and tasteless works. 
and He condemns her for them. And that brings us to verses 17, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus confronts the church. Imagine you're hearing this letter and you're expecting just one good word from Jesus. Just one little thing to let us know we might be okay, but that good word never comes. Jesus goes straight in to condemning or confronting and then condemning the church after He calls the church to consider who He is. He's reminding the church that they are not like Him. And this is ultimately their problem. He says, I know your works. And at that point you might expect some commendation, but there is none. He confronts the church because she is lukewarm. As was mentioned earlier, sometimes we think of lukewarm as having something to do with spiritual or emotional intensity. And there is room for thinking in those terms. Sometimes we are quite hot for the Lord and sometimes we are quite cold for the Lord. And both of those things have their time and place. But I think there's something else going on in this, uh, in this confrontation of the church at Laodicea. It's not that Jesus wants them to be intense one way or the other. It's that He is concerned that this church has become indistinct from the culture. This church has become indistinct from the culture. And so He confronts them for their ambivalence. He confronts them for their arrogance. He confronts them for their indifference. He confronts them for their independence. All of these things come about because they have assimilated the culture. They have become so much like the world that they're no longer challenging the world or confronting the dominant culture around them with the gospel. They have taken on the vices and the virtues of the world around them. And so when Jesus looks at this church, He can no longer distinguish between the church and the world. They have become lukewarm, something that is not pleasant in His mouth, not pleasant to His taste or to His liking. And ultimately, that's all that matters, isn't it? Whether a congregation pleases Jesus or not is all that matters. It's not about whether the congregation has pleased all of the other congregants or all of the other members. It's not whether the congregation has pleased all of the other churches around it. It's not even whether the church has pleased the culture. No, ultimately, all any congregation, any church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be concerned about is how that church tastes in the mouth of Jesus. When Jesus comes to your church and He takes a drink of what you are serving and what you're offering and what you're giving, is He going to be soothed? Is He going to be satisfied? Is He going to be refreshed? Or is He going to be disgusted? And you see with this congregation that Jesus has come and He has sampled what this church is offering up. And he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's a very graphic image here. Vomit with disgust. A few years ago, I had a friend who said that in her family, they never talked about tea throwing up. They never talked about tea. They felt that someone might do that if they talked about it. Jesus is not afraid to talk about it. Some things make him throw up, make him sick to his stomach. What are those things? Notice that it's nothing that he's seen before. It's nothing that he's indicated. And he has mentioned some very bad and tasteless things that are happening in other congregations. But there's something about this congregation 
that he finds to be so tasteless that he will vomit it out of his mouth. And to be clear, when I say this congregation, I don't mean you. I'm talking about Laodicea, okay? I say that for those who, the one or two people who might ever listen to this sermon, they'll think, oh, he's what, Christ's covenant church? No, no, I'm talking about the church at Laodicea. Notice here that it's this idea of lukewarm. They've taken things that are hot and cold and mixed them together. There are some Christian traditions who try to do that kind of thing. They want to be the middle way or the third way. And they're sort of indistinct. You can't quite tell which way they're going. And this is becoming all too common here among American Christians, American evangelicalism. Jesus warns us to be careful about this, lest he vomit us out of his mouth with disgust. Notice what else is happening here. When he confronts this church, you get an idea of why they've become lukewarm in verse 17. They are saying, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. This is a church that has so much cash, they don't need Christ anymore. They don't need to pray. They don't need to trust in the Lord. They don't need to worry about if they're going to make the rent next month. They have so much money that they have forgotten the Lord. This is a church that has, by virtue of its own prosperity, its own growth, its own acquisition of resources, that they have actually marginalized Jesus. And I'll prove that to you in just a moment. He's no longer welcome in their church. He's on the outside looking in. This is a church that considers itself to be independent of the Lord God. It's a church that has become arrogant in its reliance and dependence upon its own resources. This language, by the way, comes straight out of the book of Hosea, where God confronted His people many times for their unfaithfulness. Remember in that story of Hosea, there's an image of a prophet who has to take an adulterous wife, and that's a symbol of the relationship of God and His people. But what was that adulterous wife doing? She was engaged in idolatry. She had become ignorant of the things of God. She was pursuing destruction. And at one point, she actually says, I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. All of this foreshadows, by the way, things that we've already seen in our um, survey of the book of Revelation. I remind you of what we saw just a few weeks ago in chapter 17 and chapters 18 when we met that woman, the whore of Babylon. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. When woe is pronounced upon her, we hear, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, has come to nothing. The point that I'm trying to get you to see here is that the church in Laodicea is acting very much like the unfaithful people of God that we met in the Old Testament, but they're also acting very much like the unfaithful and rebellious culture around them. 
They have compromised the faith. They have assimilated the world into themselves. To use the language of the apostles throughout the New Testament, we might say of this church at Laodicea that she loved the world and the things in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. She loved those things. And to love those things is to hate God. You cannot love God and the world. What's happening to the church at Laodicea is terrifying. She has gained the whole world, but at what cost? She is forfeiting her own soul. When she says, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, she is not looking at herself in light of who Jesus Christ is. She is looking at herself in light of the culture around her. Compared to the culture, she was healthy and sexy and wealthy and visionary and stylish. She was everything the world wants a church to be. She was nothing that Christ wants a church to be. When he looked at her and compared her to himself, he said she was wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And in saying these things to her, he is echoing the prophet Isaiah who spoke the word of the Lord to the people of God in Isaiah 3, 18 to 24. Hear what God said to his people then and see how it connects to the church at Laodicea. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope instead of a well-set hair baldness and instead of a rich robe a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty the more things change the more they remain the same and this is a part of the history of God's people when God's people grow cold in their love for Christ and grow warm in their love for the world when they find themselves allured and attracted to the things of this world, to all that glitters, they imagine to be gold, and they gather for themselves more and more things, and they pursue things that are material, things of this world, things that will clutter their lives. They become distracted away from the things that matter most, away from the things that please the Lord God. Their hearts become crowded by the idols of this age. And this letter, along with the prophets, reminds us that God will not stand for these things. Jesus Christ will not tolerate this kind of idolatry in His church. And so when He comes to the church at Laodicea, He doesn't get on to them because they are wealthy. That is not their problem. He doesn't get on to them because they have prospered. That is not the problem. He gets on to them because they have turned those things into ultimate things. And they've begun to rely upon the things of this world rather than on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Notice his counsel to the church in verses 18 and 19. And the word counsel here, by the way, is not one that I'm just making up, but it's actually the word that Jesus uses when he speaks to the church. I counsel you. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, white garments, and salve to anoint your eyes. G.K. Beale points out in his commentary that there are a lot of connections here between the things Jesus says in this letter and the way Jesus revealed himself to his people in Revelation chapter 1. Buy from me gold. In Revelation 1, Jesus appeared wearing a golden sash around his chest. Buy from me a white robe. Jesus appears in Revelation 1 wearing a white robe. He has hair and a beard that are white. He is purity and wisdom. Buy from me salve for your eyes. In Revelation 1, Jesus appears with eyes of blazing fire. He sees everything. He sees through the darkness. He sees past our deceits. He sees into our lives. He sees our sin. In contrast to Jesus, the church at Laodicea is blind. There is no fire in their eyes. Their eyes have grown dark and cold. They cannot see. The Laodiceans need to buy. Think about that language. They're wealthy. They're prosperous. They're healthy. This is the, a church that we might be tempted to say, well, they're the forerunners of the health and wealth church. The prosperity gospel was alive and well in Laodicea. But in fairness to the health and wealth guys, I don't think that was the case. I think that this was actually a Presbyterian church gone wrong. It was an evangelical church that had become deformed. A church that one time was orthodox, but used their orthodoxy as an excuse to harbor their wealth, to become self-centered and independent of the Lord. Jesus comes to them and says, I advise you to buy from me something. And what does he want them to buy? He wants them to buy from him the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wants them to buy the gospel of grace, which was offered to them freely, available to them freely, without cost. Why does he use the language of buying then, if it's free? He's trying to get their attention. This is a consumerist church. It's the American evangelical church. Loves to spend money on itself. Loves to dote on itself. Treat itself. Comfort itself. You like to spend money? You like to buy things? Come buy something for me. And they show up with their money. They show up with their prosperity, their wealth, all of these resources only to find out that your money isn't good here. Jesus is echoing the words of the prophet Isaiah, which we heard in the Scripture reading before the sermon from the Old Testament, where God calls His people to come and buy from Him things that He intends to give them freely. 
But when you go to buy something, you are either expressing your desire for it, or you're expressing your need for it, or maybe a combination. And Jesus is saying, come buy from me. In other words, come and show me that you know that you need me. So what they truly needed, they couldn't find at their world-renowned banking center there in Laodicea. They couldn't find it at their luxurious shopping mall or in the marketplace. They couldn't find it in their high-tech medical district. All of those things were in Laodicea. And Jesus was saying, what you need, you cannot find where you are. The world cannot provide for you what you need. Only I can. So come to me. Put down your golden cup of pride. Take off your purple and scarlet lust of the flesh. And put the ointment on the eyes that are so lustful. Come, repent of your love of the world. Turn and love God. Hate the world. Something I want you to see in verse 19. I'll be honest, I didn't see this. I've read this letter many times over the last two decades. And it was only this week that I actually saw something here that caught my eye in a good way. Even though this church is so miserable, pitiful, destitute, blind, naked, nothing good Jesus can say about this church, I want you to see what verse 19 says. So you look at it with your own eyeballs, and when you've had a chance to see it, then I'll point it out to you. What do you see? Jesus loved this church. And the word he uses for love is not agape. It's not I love you unconditionally, no strings attached. He loved this church with brotherly love. What's he saying to this church? You are my people, you're my kin. You're my blood. You're my family. Jesus loves this wretched, miserable church. I would to God that more pastors and ministers love the churches in front of them the way Jesus loves his church. I would to God that more of God's people love the church the way Jesus loved his church. If ever anyone had an excuse to leave a church, it would be the members of the church at Laodicea. All they have to do is read this letter and say, Jesus hates this place, let's get out of here. But they don't do that. Because they hear in this that Jesus loves this church. And he says, I reprove and discipline those who I love. So be zealous and repent. In other words, he hasn't given up on this church. We've given up on churches for far less than this, and yet Jesus doesn't give up at all. The word zealous here could be loosely translated. If there's a Greek scholar present, uh, he'll get me for this, but here's how I would loosely translate it. It means get fired up. You see, they're lukewarm. But they need, to, they need to heat up. He's trying to put a little fire under them. I love you. I want things to be right. I'm trying to help you correct some matters here. Get fired up. Repent. 
Don't be lax about this. We don't have time to play around. Proverbs 3, 11 to 12 is quoted in the book of Hebrews, and it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The church at Laodicea, if they don't know anything else about Jesus at this point, they should know this, that he has not given up on us yet. He loves us enough to bring us into some hard times, discipline and chastisement. Hebrews 12 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Jesus loves this wretched church so much that he's willing to discipline this church. And by the way, discipline, this is just an aside for parents. Discipline doesn't always mean spank. Sometimes it means spank. But sometimes it means to guide or to teach, right? It's correction and instruction. And that's what Jesus is doing here. I love how in all of these letters, Jesus moves from whatever he's doing, commendation, confrontation. He always ends up with comfort. He comforts the church. Look at verses 22, uh, 20 to 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. We've all seen the paintings, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus standing at a door and everything's a little bit fuzzy looking, so romantic. He's got a book or a package in his hand or something, maybe a sandwich he's trying to come in and share with you. That is not what this is about. He's not knocking on the door of your personal, individual heart, trying to get in as if he couldn't get in if he wanted to. I remind you that after the resurrection, he just walked through walls and doors altogether. He didn't care if they were locked or not. So what is this about? Is he literally locked out of the church? No. He's simply reminding the church that the church has locked him out of their lives. He can get in anytime he wants. But this is symbolic, isn't it? He's on the outside looking in. He wants the church to see, you've marginalized me. You've put me on the edge. But I'm not going away yet. I'm still knocking, right? But there's Old Testament precedent for this image. And it comes from a very strange place, a strange book that probably most of you have never read unless you're a teenage boy and you're curious. 
You might have taken a peek at the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 to 6. This is what we find. It says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Now, the Song of Solomon is a poem between lovers. It's uh, poetic language describing the love between lovers. But you can see the imagery here as well as Jesus approaches his church, a brother to a sister perhaps, knocking on the door, let me in. What's going to happen if he lets her in or if she lets him in? I will come in and eat. And we will eat together. Beautiful imagery here. Jesus spoke of these kinds of things, this kind of communion and table fellowship in his own life and ministry. In the Gospel of Luke, for example, chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, Jesus says to his disciples, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. It's not that Jesus is knocking on the door because he's hungry and he needs a place to eat. He's knocking on the door because he wants to come in and have fellowship communion with His people. Each week when we come to the Lord's table, we are dramatizing and reenacting in some way our own desire to have that kind of fellowship with the Lord Jesus and enjoy that kind of communion with Him. We want Jesus to come. We want Him to knock. We want to be ready and open the door so that he can come and eat and drink with us at his table. And when he comes to eat and drink at his table with us, he is the one who serves us. He becomes the host, and we become the guests, even though we receive him as Lord. Well, the church at Laodicea was quite a mess, wasn't it? It might remind you of some churches you've known in your experience with God's people, churches that had so much wealth, so much health, that they forgot their need of the grace of God. They enjoy their good things in this life while others suffer. They enjoy their building projects and their own ministry plans while others scrape by. Others are waiting for crumbs to fall from their tables, and yet they turn a blind eye to them, though they claim to see. 
You think about what's happening in Asia Minor. We, a few weeks ago, met the church at Smyrna, which was called a church that was poor and yet rich in faith. And now we meet a church that is rich and yet poor in faith. If the church at Laodicea had loved their brothers the way Christ calls us to love our brothers, they would not have loved them with words only, but with actions and in truth. They would have shared their resources with those who are less fortunate and more needy than they were. And it is to these kinds of things that Jesus is calling the church at Laodicea to repent, to turn, to trust Him, to consider the needs of others as perhaps even greater than their own. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not only to the church at Laodicea, but to all the churches. We might consider ourselves to be not very wealthy, and yet we have so much more than so many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We never want to fall into the trap of depending on or relying on any of our resources, but only on God alone. And it is to these things that the Lord Jesus Christ calls us this evening. I would like for us to pray what we find in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 through 9. It begins this way, that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. And the prayer is this, what a mentor of mine taught me years ago, that this is the ideal economy. This is what God calls His people to, godliness with contentment. If you will, let us bow and pray together. O Lord God Almighty, there are two things we ask of You. Deny them not to us before we die. Remove far from us falsehood and lying. Give us neither poverty nor riches. Feed us with the food that is needful for us, lest we be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest we be poor and steal and profane the name of our God. All these things we ask and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.